This is the Gartner Podcast for Supply Chain Leaders. Hello, I'm Thomas O'Connor, and welcome to the first episode of the Gartner Supply Chain Podcast for 2022. I'd like to kick things off this year by recognizing and thanking our fantastic audience. Your continued engagement is why we exist. And based off the growing number of you that are tuning in, we've decided to expand our offering for 2022. Starting today, you'll be hearing a new regular colleague joining the podcast as host, Caroline Chumikov, as we expand our podcast publication frequency from one episode to two episodes per month from February. Caroline will join me for a few upcoming episodes as co-host before we split podcast hosting duties, each individually hosting one episode per month from March. Caroline, it's great to have you on board. Thanks, Thomas. I'm really excited to be co-hosting and I'm looking forward to all the interesting conversations we'll be having in the months to come. Brilliant. Thanks, Caroline. So let's get into the meat of today's discussion. It's time to welcome today's special podcast guest, Gartner Supply Chain Senior Director, Analyst, Simon Bailey. And as we kick off a mini series on Gartner's supply chain predictions for 2022. Simon, it's great to have you on board too. Thank you. Hi, Thomas. Hi, Caroline. It's great to be with you too. And thanks for the opportunity to join your podcast. I'm looking forward to a great discussion. Beautiful. All right. So, Simon, I'm sure many of our listeners have heard of Gartner Predicts before, but this year you've done something new. You've published a new form of Gartner Predicts focused on supply chain strategy. Gartner clients, I strongly recommend you check it out via the link in the show notes. And Simon, can you give us a quick insight into why this year we've pulled the trigger on publishing this new set of predictions and why it's of value to our clients? Yeah, sure. I think, you know, our focus has been previously on the technology space. That's been so fast in its evolution and we wanted to cover that. But this year we felt it was an absolute must to cover uh, strategy predicts as well, because things are just changing at such a, a rate. And as the key initiative leader for Gartner's chief supply chain officer, strategy research, you know, I get the privilege of pulling this together. So, I went out to the whole analyst community and got great interest in people participating. So we actually had to down select the number of predictions. And what we did was we made sure those were most aligned to the critical concerns of the CSEO. But we didn't just want to cover the obvious things and we want to raise some eyebrows with these as well. So we have to look beyond the obvious. And the aim of the predicts and these supply chain strategy predicts in particular is to look at the medium term future and make statements that help our clients make smart bets and take calculated risks based on those bets on our research. So for 2022, CSGOs really should be looking at what we've, we've put in the uh, predicts and, and they're based on unimagined disruptions that are yet to come to global networks, operating models trying to fast forward and look at stakeholder demands and how they're about, uh, you know, evolving. Um, and really our predictions can be used as a signpost to look at emerging challenges. And we really focus on how companies will be competing in new value-aligned ecosystem partnerships, modular design practices, and augmented decision-making. And we're really also trying to highlight that the imperative is to close any remaining say-do gap that your organization may have when it comes to key stakeholder concerns such as sustainability and diversity, equity, and inclusion. That's great, Simon. And I know we won't be able to cover all of these predictions today, but you, you just brought up the, the idea of the say-do gap uh, that I think is very relevant, and I, I'd love to unpack it a bit more if that's okay. 
this this idea that we've made all these commitments to sustainable packaging, to DEI, to reducing our carbon footprint, but are we actually doing anything differently? Are we actually making real progress toward our objectives? And I want to focus on one of your predictions that discusses the closing of this say do gap, which is by 2024. 70% of global organizations will report metrics to track realization in supply chain against corporate diversity, equity, and inclusion objectives. Really interested to hear why you think there will be such a heavy emphasis on DEI metric reporting and just what impact you think this will have on the say do gap that we're seeing. That's a great question. I, th I think, I mean, the, the, the first part of the question, why will we see it close? Because we see the benefits. There are clearly defined benefits and, and, and from your coverage, you know this uh, in terms of what we've seen, companies generate uh, benefits from focusing on DE&I. But why do we need to see it close? Well, 2020 was a bit of a turning point for many chief supply chain officers, commitment to diversity, equity, and inclusion. And that, was generally focused more in larger global supply chain organizations, those over like $5 billion uh, in terms of uh, turnover. And, and we saw them actually take a lead in this space when it comes to the talent war. There's a huge war for talent and a lot of that talent uh, will come from uh, underrepresented parts of um, the employee group. So, you know, if we look at where we are today, only 42% of global companies uh, that we surveyed actually have DEI objectives that they're managing in their leaders' scorecards. Uh, whereas, if we compare that to those that we see as leaders uh, within the supply chain space, and if I refer especially to uh, if we did a specific cut of the Gartner Top 25, those organizations that we know lead in so many areas, 83% of those have already got um, measurements in place that are looking to adherence on DNI corporate metrics such as percentage of women and other underrepresented groups in leadership positions. And what they've done with that is they've driven a uh, benefit in terms of hard business outcomes. Now, what we also see is that it tends to be that uh, things like gender goals are set at a global level. Whereas other dimensions of diversity, such as ethnicity, tend to be set more regionally to reflect the underrepresented groups there. And you know, if I were to, to address the final part of your question, the key recommendations in terms of why companies should close these, well, you need to be doing two things. You need to be looking at lagging metrics, such as you know, doing an employee survey and looking at the representation or indeed the reward, the pay, the merit, do we have uh, uh, equal pay uh, based on uh, gender, racial and ethnic minority, sexual orientation, gender identity, disability status, veteran status, you know, those sort of areas. We need to be looking at the lagging metrics there and have those clearly reflected in our scorecard. That's great. But to really close the say-do gap, we need to be also including leading metrics that'll drive education and awareness, yes, but also go further to operationalize the elimination of bias in performance management, in areas like recruiting and other areas. And what we're essentially seeing the leading organizations do by including these uh, DNI metrics 
in their scorecards is they're holding themselves and each other accountable across leadership groups. And that's really gonna be what drives a change. It's already driven a change in many of the leading organizations. And, and that's why we predict that other organizations will join them and we'll see a near doubling uh, of the percentage of organizations that include that in their key metrics. It's really interesting, Simon, when we think about where DEI is going. And of course, as you mentioned and Caroline mentioned earlier, um, this say-do gap around you know, what we're projecting to either our own internal employees, external markets or other stakeholders, um, and then what we're actually doing about it and how we're moving towards those um, more, more forward-looking um, metrics and actions that we can be taking uh, are really interesting. So, so thank you for that. But I'm conscious that with these predictions that there are these elements which are looking at this say-do challenge, but also there's more of these components which are focused on thinking big and driving real transformation across both our organization and the broader ecosystem. And, and that ecosystem piece is, I know, a, a really core piece of your uh, coverage here at Gartner. And uh, so I wanted to dive in there and, and actually circle in on one specific prediction that you've made, that by 2026, more than 50% of large organizations will compete as collaborative digital ecosystems rather than discrete firms sharing inputs, assets, and innovations. And so when we think about that, that idea of, more than 50% of large organizations, it's a really big number because there's so much complexity that comes with ecosystems, et cetera. So I was hoping you could start to give us a bit of uh, the rationale as to why we see this, this shift happening. Okay, okay. So, so first of all, just a little bit of a definition piece uh, here. And, um, you know, as PM and NTM myself worked on this particular uh, predict, what we were what we were looking at is, the current status quo is that companies compete. Yeah, large, those large organizations that you talk about, they compete with each other. But increasingly, we've seen that CSCOs are recognizing that there are challenges that go simply beyond their ability. Now, nearly every organization today is already digitally connected with trading partners, but the breadth and depth of those connections are typically limited to like tier one suppliers or immediate uh, 3PL providers. But what we're talking about with ecosystems is far larger than that. We're including competitors, we're including um, governments and NGOs and academia and startups and all sorts of different novel partners that will come together to form ecosystems. And those ecosystems together will then compete with each other. So one will compete with the other. But the benefit of being within that ecosystem is that you can address issues far larger than just your own corporate uh, concerns. And the sort of things that CSCOs are raising with us is that the most critical issues facing them are things like how do we set carbon emission footprint standards? How do we address the drivers of climate change? What are we going to do to actually enable the circular economy through raw material design standards by working together on recycling? Um, it, these, are, these are the things that are too big for any one organization to, to address. And so that's where we see the real benefits coming. And that's why we believe that ecosystems will actually become the predominant form of, of competition as we move forward. Now, 
we are talking about some quite complex uh, you know, collaboration strategies and, and capabilities here. So we don't expect everybody to be an ecosystem leader. But for those taking part in ecosystems and developing them, um, we asked the question today, what are your prime motivations? And today, 63% of organizations say they're in it to drive efficiency. That isn't going to be the thing that takes us over the line in terms of moving towards um, the 50% the, the mark that we're talking about by 2026. What we also asked is, what are your prime motivations for the future? And when we asked that, we saw a complete switch around from uh, the last position to the first position uh, and the second position being, the second position was that 44% um, of companies believe that in the future they'll connect for innovation. They'll work with novel partners and startups uh, and others to bring new innovation to life. But the number one driver will be for higher purpose. They will align themselves to the purpose that is bigger than their own organization. And um, as I say, that includes uh, such things as tackling climate change and working together to create new standards that will enable the circular economy to come to life. And Simon, there was a really interesting analogy that you shared with me just before we got on recording the podcast today, actually, for a bit of insight, I guess, our works. And would you mind sharing that with everyone? Because I thought that was a really nice way of, um, I guess, bringing this into the, the real world, you know, beyond our, our supply chains and an example, which I think everyone can relate to. Certainly. Yeah. Um, I, I, I coach triathlon, uh, but I also take part in a lot of uh, cycling and cycling races. And one of the things that people know about cycling is um, that if you've watched the Tour de France, for example, you'll see that teams compete against each other and they're aiming to, to, to get the yellow jersey. But while they're riding along, they benefit from pooling their resources. In other words, bunching together in the peloton, sharing the time at the front of the group to, to, uh, to, to make the whole peloton move at a far, far higher rate. So they can achieve things that an individual rider cannot achieve. So coming together, even with your competitors and sharing the resources, sharing the workload uh, and, and working in an equitable way, because if you're not equitable, then nobody's going to want to ride with you. Uh, so yeah, that, that's the kind of the, the similarity I get to my personal life is that, you know, we can achieve things that are simply unachievable if we work together. It's really fascinating, Simon. And, you know, I think the Peloton example illustrates that that shift that you're describing, where right now it seems as if ecosystems might still be focused on on what I can get out of the situation, right, and, and our our collaboration with partners. Um, but what we'll see going forward is that there there has to be some sort of driving purpose that we're all contributing to for this to be truly successful, and and for us to see that massive shift of, of of ecosystems competing with one another, which is incredibly interesting. And, you know, what I love about these predictions um, that you're sharing, Simon, is that it helps a lot of the listeners that are, are tuning in to get ahead of, of trends that are happening or, or that could be happening very soon because leaders are already exploring in these spaces. Um, but I'm also conscious that we've been making predictions like this for um, for years. 
And certainly we're not always right, but we have gotten very close to predicting the future in many cases. And there's one predict that you outlined in this research that I'd love to discuss. And it's that by year end 2030, limited sequestration capacity will more than double the cost of carbon in validating weak greenhouse gas ambitions that rely on carbon offsets and sequestration technology breakthroughs. So my understanding is we're on target for this prediction. And I'd like to know why, what, what exactly is happening here and what are the what signs are, are telling us that we're on track? Okay, so, so there are lots of bits squeezed in to the limited number of words, 24 words in one predict, which is what we tend to try and do. Uh, and so it covers a lot of things. It's talking about the, the cost of carbon, and it's also talking about the fact that we won't have enough sequestration capacity. Um, so let's address both of those. The first one is the cost of carbon. So for years, for years, countries fail to sign off um, Article 6 uh, within, within the, the, the whole environmental uh, COP agenda. The, the, the conference of the parties. And then we had a breakthrough. On November the 12th, COP26, they finally, after six years of haggling, came together and agreed the rules governing trading of emissions reductions unit. And whereas at the start of this year, if you look, I mean, if I take the European Union um, emissions trading scheme as a kind of, uh, you know, pretty well-established benchmark for carbon, um, at least in the European Union. You can you can see that it stood at the beginning of the year at 32 euros. It was lower in North America. In Europe now, it has already doubled. So the fact that we now have taken away some of the issues around the clarity, the, the double counting and, and, and proper accounting of vol voluntary carbon markets as well, means that it's so much more likely countries are going to be able to compare themselves uh, and the EU themselves have said you know we might consider a carbon border adjustment mechanism uh, if we see other countries not taking the same measures to reduce their carbon uh, footprint so so yeah that's why that's why it's accelerated so that's the first piece we've already hit the cost of carbon piece the second thing is there are a lot of things people can do to reduce their emissions at the moment. And um, the second part of the prediction is saying, you know, don't rely on weak um, um, positions uh, that rely, for example, on sequestration technology breakthroughs that currently don't exist. Because what will happen is that the capacity to offset will disappear. Um, and where we are at the moment is that more and more organizations are making net zero pledges. You know, we've again, we've seen that double uh, in terms of the top global companies uh, in, in a very limited period of time. So more people wanting to reduce their carbon or or find some sort of uh, natural or, or sequestration, some sort of sequestration offset, and at the same time uh, that cost going up. So, yeah, that's that's really what's driven it. There's the, it's a supply and demand. It's as simple as that. Uh, people want to achieve net zero. Uh, they want to do it through through uh, if they want to do it through offsets and sequestration, they're going to find it costs them more. So the best thing to do, and that's why these predicts are so important, is to use 
this forward-looking cost of carbon, the 64 euros in your own return on investment calculations as you're looking at your supply chain uh, and then, uh, you know, uh, adopt some sort of internal shadow pricing. Simon, we've, we've covered a lot today, mate. It's, um, it's fascinating going from DEI and that um, say-do piece and then ecosystems and now greenhouse gas emissions and, and how um, our world's really transforming in, in the supply chain, but also more broadly across business. So uh, these supply chain strategy predictions you're making are fascinating and really interesting to see where we're going and helping um, Gartner clients, chief supply chain officers, other supply chain leaders understand um, where Gartner's visioning the, the world to, to go towards. So thank you very much for that, mate. And thank you so much for joining us today and taking us through these predictions. I know we only managed to cover off a couple of these because they are so big and so deep and so rich. Um, however, I want to call out that there are more predictions available to Gartner clients in your published research report on topics ranging from composability and modularity in the supply chain to things like sustainable packaging. For Gartner clients, the report is accessible to you via the link in the show notes or by simply going to Gartner.com and searching for Predicts 2022 Supply Chain Strategy. Finally, as we close out today's podcast, if you've enjoyed our show, please be sure to go to Gartner.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you've listened to our podcast today and give us a five-star rating, as well as subscribe to make sure you're notified once our next podcast is released. Thank you all again for tuning in. My name's Thomas O'Gonner, and together with my new co-host, Caroline Chumikov, we can't wait to be speaking with you all again next month as we continue our mini podcast series on Gartner's 2022 Supply Chain Predictions. Please subscribe and share the episode with your colleagues. Thank you for listening. Gartner Podcasts are a production of Gartner, the world's leading research and advisory company, equipping executives across the enterprise with indispensable insight, advice, and tools to achieve their mission-critical priorities. You can learn more at Gartner.com. All content in Gartner Podcasts is owned by Gartner and cannot be repurposed or reproduced without Gartner's consent. Gartner is an impartial, independent analyst of business and technology. This content should not be construed as a Gartner endorsement of any enterprise's product or services. All content provided by other speakers is expressly the views of those speakers and their organizations. 